Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective Podcast. Where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more than slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us-versus-them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now, this is not an interview, and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, go for main engine start, main engine start, 2, 1, Booster ignition and liftoff of the Space Shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way for future missions beyond. Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, another episode of Conversations Sheltered in Place. I uh, hope this message finds you guys safe and, and healthy and uh, dealing with this uh, current crisis as, as best you can. And that's the, that's the purpose of these conversations, to help folks navigate uh, the COVID-19 crisis and to not only just get out the other side the way they were before, but to, to come out the other side uh, improved. So um, stronger, more unified, better able to uh, uh, deal with any crises that, that come down the the road. I'm really really excited about uh, today's episode. We've got uh, not one uh, con- fellow converser, but two, um, and I'll uh, introduce these guys in a second. But I'm really excited because it's I think it's really important for folks to um, 
get the real facts. You know, what is what are, what are scientists saying about uh, how we got to where we are and how we're going to get through it? And then uh, most importantly, how we're going to get through it uh, in, in a beneficial way. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to I'm going to read these guys bios uh, real quick. And it, it would take me. <laughs> <laughs> like a week to uh, to really do justice. But uh, uh, we have uh, Dr. Alex Dagan and we have uh, Dr. Paul Bungie, uh, who are both with us today. And Dr. Alex Dagan has worked on wildlife conservation and foreign policy in settings as diverse as Saddam Hussein's pool house in Iraq while under fire in the western reaches of the Himalayas in post-conflict Afghanistan the leech and predator-filled rainforests of southeastern Madagascar, Central and South America, the chaos of the collapsing halls of the Kremlin, former Soviet weapons labs in Central Asia, and the conservative and state halls of the University of Chicago, and the Field Museum of Natural History. He tends to run to places in the midst of change and problems that are thought too difficult to solve. Dr. Dagan is the CEO and the co-founder of Conservation X Labs. He previously served as the chief scientist at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, with the rank of assistant administrator. Alex found and led the Office of Science and Technology, OST, and created the vision for and helped stand up the Global Development Lab, the agency's DARPA for development. Prior to USAID, Alex worked in multiple positions at the Department of State, including using science to support bilateral dipl diplomacy. Alex was the founding country director of the Wildlife Conservation Society Afghanistan program and helped create Afghanistan's first national park. Alex is the author of the book, The Snow Leopard Project, which describes that effort. And it was selected by Journal Nature's book editor as one of the top five science books of 2019. Alex holds a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Chicago and a JD from the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Alex has won multiple awards from the Departments of State and Defense, as well as being named as, as an icon of science, the World Technology Award, and in 2020, being given the University of Chicago's Medical and Biological Alumni Association's highest honor. Now, Paul Bungie uh, is also a co-founder, uh, and he's the COO and CSO of Conservation X Labs. And now Conservation X Labs is an organization that brings innovation to global conservation threats. Conservation X Labs brings technology and entrepreneurship to protect biodiversity using a mix of crowdsourcing, open innovation, directed research, and acceleration. Paul was formerly the chief scientist at the XPRIZE Foundation, where he led the impact strategy across grand challenge domains at XPRIZE. And this spanned civil, society, environment, energy, health, and exploration. Dr. Bungie is a global thought leader in bringing innovation to solve environmental grand challenges. Paul was formerly the founding executive director of the UCLA Center for Climate Change Solutions, the managing director of the Los Angeles Regional Collaborative for Climate Action and Sustainability, and served on the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council for Oceans. The American Association for the Advancement of Science selected Paul as one of 40 individuals that exemplify the thousands of AAAS science and technology policy fellows who are dedicated to applying science to serve society. Paul is trained in biology, 
with a BS from the University of Southern California and a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. And so with that, uh, I'm really happy to bring these guys into our conversation. So, hey, Alex, hey, Paul, how are you guys hello, doing? Hello, Ron. I think we're done now, right? Yeah, that's it. We're out of time. <laughs> you know, the, uh, you mentioned those those 40 AAAS fellows. Alex was one of the others. So it doesn't oh. fit on his extremely long bio, I guess. I've heard none of them right here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I do want to talk about uh, a lot of your background because it is fascinating um, to, to hear all that stuff. But I just want to start out, though, by asking you guys, where does conservation uh, how is it related to the COVID-19 crisis? Why, why would we be interested in conversation uh, in conservation in this conversation? Paul, do you want to start? Uh, sure. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the clearest answer is that we, we think that this virus that causes COVID-19 came from, uh, from animals, bats, uh, potentially via, via pangolins or in some other way. Uh, and in particular in, in these wet markets in Wuhan, China, uh, the leading theory. And this is, I, I guess, you know, it's increasingly common that, that diseases that arise in animals are spilling over into humans. Uh, zoonotic diseases like, like Ebola, HIV, MERS, SARS, the first SARS, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And so, um, you know, we are in the midst of dealing with one of the consequences of how it is that humans interact with the environment. And the more that we cut down forests, for example, and, and, and logging camps move into places where there are these diseases, the more that we trade in, in, uh, in animals that, that harbor, harbor some of these viruses like, uh, like bats can do, uh, the more likely we're gonna see these, these, these jumps of diseases from animals into humans that, that cause these kinds of pandemics. And scientists have been kind of pro projecting this for a long time. Alex, you actually, you wrote about this for the State Department like 15 years ago, right? I mean, this is- yeah, 2005, we wrote a memo for Secretary Rice that because we were responding to SARS and and you remember there was NEPA, which was bats that they had cleared land in Malaysia where bats were defecating over pig pens that led to the spread of of, of another type of coronavirus. Then there's MERS, which is where we've gotten it. It's something like 60 to 75 percent of emerging infectious diseases are shared now between humans, livestock and wildlife and something that they call One Health. Right. Um, so this is definitely something that we don't think about, but we tend to react to. We, we think about, right, like, like, oh, my God, we're in the middle of another pandemic. Let us spend billions, now trillions of dollars reacting to them. But let's actually start thinking about the reasons why did they emerge in the first place? What were those proximity points? How does climate change now have Zika now have uh, dengue in the United States coming up on our borders. How, you know, how have new paths and pathogens been spread because of global trade? How has wildlife trade, uh, you know, pangolins are the number, they're, they're one, they're the cutest things in the world, right? They, they look like aardvarks, but with like little T-Rex arms and they run on their hind legs, right? Like how do you, turn that into medicine, I don't know, but it's 20% of global wildlife trade. Um, and we're putting ourselves into these positions uh, that, that are leading to the spread of the diseases. So thinking about not only how do we stop the current pandemic, but conservation might actually have the keys to preventing the next 20 of them. I think that's what, like, one of the things that we've really learned, Ron, is, is what we've been reflecting on is exactly that point that 
the, the, the problems we want to solve to protect biodiversity are the same problems we want to solve to protect human health. Yeah. And, and they're not they're not separate fields. It's it's literally, you know, let's 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 stop the pangolin from going extinct. And, and, and by being being over over harvested for uh, food and, and, <clears throat> and traditional medicines. But it's also leading to, to outbreaks of, right. of various sorts. So let's 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 think about ways that we can actually make the sort of holistic world we want in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess the point is that we don't have a human biosphere and then a biosphere for all the other animals and plants. This, you have one biosphere on the planet. And I, you took this so like. I, mean, I love that you have the the the, the planet Earth behind you because you, you 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 among any of us probably understand that better than anyone. There's there's one thing. Alex has this great slide in talks that he gives, which is one of these, one of these fancy paintings from the, from the 1800s of, of Arcadia, right? This like perfect notion of nature out there. And for a long time, we, we, we human, you know, at least we Westerners folks in the U S have thought about nature somewhere else. And you put up a fence around it and you create a, you create a barrier between humans and nature, but you're right. There's no, there's no barrier. I mean, they, we found plastic garbage at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Right. Right. Yeah. So like we literally are everywhere and nature is with us everywhere yeah. as we can as we can see as we all wear our masks and shelter yeah. at home. When I when I was in Afghanistan, there's this really cool part called the Wakhan Corridor, which is that arm of Afghanistan that reaches out and touches China. And here here's your trivia pursuit fact of the day. If you cross that border, you have to reset your watch three and a half hours because it's the biggest time zone difference in the world. China's set on one single time zone. Mm -hmm. uh, Afghanistan's set on another. It's near this place called the Eurasian Pole of Inaccessibility. It's like one or two weeks by yak because <laughs> you run out of roads to be able to get there through Afghanistan. Uh, it's literally a pathway Marco Polo took, but everywhere in that region, you can see human influence and human presence. But we have this belief that, that you know, the world is untouched, um, but we are part and parcel of the world, right? right. And, but we sort of, sort of, it, traditional conservation has taken humans out of it. And right. I, you know, this is the value of the orbital, orbital perspective, uh, is recognizing you're talking about a single organism that involves humans within it. And that means changing our behaviors, changing our systems, working with the systems that we have, recognizing the limitations of things like national parks that are just bigger fragments yeah. uh, around what we're trying to do. Yeah, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, back in 1967, on, on, on his, in his Christmas sermon on peace, uh, basically said, we are not going to have peace on Earth until we understand the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. And I think um, what's really becoming clear during this crisis is the interrelated structure, <laughs> the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Everything affects everything else. And so I think it's really important to deal with the real challenges and problems facing us in the context of the real world, uh, which is deeply, profoundly interdependent. Um, and so I just want to uh, also welcome everybody who's uh, tuning in. we got a bunch of people joining. And uh, yeah, see Johnny Diggs and Taylor Lee and Diane Rubio and everybody else. I want to I want to um, I want to encourage everybody to ask questions. We'll see them, uh, and uh, I might even try and pop the questions up on the screen if I could figure out how to do that. If if you guys uh, if you guys uh, have some questions, so we've got some incredible scientists here uh, with us today, uh, and they're, and they're happy to answer uh, your questions as as they come in. 
So, you know, we talked about, and actually the tagline for this conversation uh, was, you know, we're not, we're not going to lose our world. We're going to improve our world. If I, if I, if I quoted that correctly and Alex, that was from you. Um, so what, what did you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, you know, um, uh, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. And so we, you know, in some ways, conservation has has taken a hit. We don't have ecotourism that was a major source of revenue for how we're engaging around the world. We're limited, you know, there's less enforcement in some of the places that we want, um, less people actually seeing what's going on. But on the other hand, we now have a increasingly a global community that is engaged and digital. And, you know, one of the things that we have realized is, um, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And so a lot of what we've been trying to do is thinking about how do we actually harness the, the incredible digital connected, connectedness of people around the world, the democratization of science and technology, the new tools that we have available to us, and actually work together to generate new solutions, new ways of engaging people, and overcoming one of the challenges, which is we ask, you know, we have developed in the West our economies through the destruction of our environment and the destruction of environments in other countries. But we have, we ask those people who live in the places that are biodiverse to bear kind of the greatest cost around protecting them. So we have the ability to actually kind of change that equation and find new ways of helping individuals uh, using new tools to transform what we're trying to do. And we do that. I think that now there's even more of a desire to be able to do that and use online platforms, use open innovation, uh, what's called collective intelligence, to generate solutions, to get ideas from all kinds of sectors, uh, to bring technologists, conservationists, people working next to the problem to help us generate those solutions and then bring those solutions to fruition. And that means I think we can rethink, like we can take this pause to rethink what is the world that we actually wanna live in? What are the products that we want to replace that have been, you know, making our waters um, uh, polluted and toxic that have been undermining our, our food systems that are transforming what, you know, the nature that we love and want to protect and are, is actually necessary for us to survive in. Um, we have an opportunity to do that. And we can use the crisis because of the linkage between, between the natural world and and the, this particular disease spread to think about, you know, can we actually create pandemic parks? Can we actually improve our food systems? Can we help uh, better prevent the next 10 pandemics that come out? Uh, can we create, can we decide this is the type of world we wanna live in? Uh, that is one that is freer of, you know, where political boundaries mean less. Mm -hmm. Right. As you are pointing out, because, you know, wildlife isn't respecting those boundaries. Climate change isn't respecting those boundaries. Viruses don't expect <laughs> not respecting those boundaries. Yeah. There's yeah. this thing like. No. And Alex, what you, what you say there makes me it makes me think about the time, like this moment, this pause in history. And I often think that that uh, we, we live in what is potentially the most interesting and almost certainly one of the most consequential moments in history. Definitely. I think, I think there's, there's two features that, that always make me feel that way. Number one, uh, we have more knowledge about how many problems and how big the problems are than ever before. Like we, 
we understand uh, the consequences of climate change. We can we can forecast the end of the century horrible potential things. We actually we can forecast the likelihood of, of the next pandemic. We know the, the cause. Like there's all of this knowledge about rottenness in, in the world. But on the flip of that, Alex, you're totally right. We also live in a time where we have more tools at our disposal to actually deal with them mm-hmm. than ever before. And that, yeah, that's absolutely technology. But think about the, the cost of technology, right? You can, you know, there was the beginning of, uh, I saw this one, this one stat, at the beginning of the century, it costs somewhere around $5 million on average to start an internet company. And now it costs uh, less than 1000 to start an inter- a successful internet company, right? But the same thing is true for for computers and 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 hardware and anything else you might want to want to build. But the the bigger one that I think Alex you hit on is is people. Access to the crowd, right? Half the entire world is now connected to the right. internet. Right. And and projections are that that in the next few years we're going to be upwards of 90% of the world. That's billions of new like you said I used to right. I had a old colleague that always would would stand up at corporate uh, seminars and say the smartest person in the world does not work for you, uh, and it's true, right? With billions of people right. out there in the world, there there is somebody out there. But but rather than being like bummed out that you and your 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 colleagues aren't the smartest one, we have an opportunity, like you said, Alex, to to pull them into not just reimagining and reenvisioning the the future that we want, but helping to build it, right? Exactly. This is, and, and my when I was at X Prize, the the founder of X Prize, Peter Diamandis, always used to say. That uh, I forget whose uh, whose quote it was, <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to go through Peter. But it was it was you know that that the uh, the, the best way to uh, to uh, predict the future is to build it yourself. Exactly. And uh, and I and I love that idea. And I think I, I love that. That is that is amazing. And, uh, and I think well, we can do that right. This pause, you're right, is like what a great pause to say. What's our future going to be like? Is it? I so you know what I saw today. Apparently. Bike sales are like three times higher than they've ever been yeah. before. So talk about a cool sustainability solution yeah. if everybody's buying a bike. You know, you know, Paul, you you bring up a really good point. That that point is, you know, here's an example of of the interdependencies that that we that we exist in 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 this in this place that we call Earth. You know, I think the last time I checked, it was like. Two billion people are not connected to the to the internet, right? So two people, two billion people are not connected to the to the planetary conversation that we're that we're having. They're not hooked into the to the to the the superorganism known as humanity's brain, right? <laughs> the the network networked consciousness of of humanity, and there's a there's a big effort to try and bring the internet to. Um, rural areas to impoverished areas to developing nations and you know it's it's obviously going to benefit those communities to to have access to information have access to to that knowledge and, and access to you know critical data but it's also going to help all of us and I, what i like to say is you know when we can connect those two billion creative problem-solving minds to our conversation we're going to find solutions we never dreamed of coming from places we never heard of and I I, I think this is this is exactly right, and I want to just give like a couple of examples uh, that came off some of our platforms. And I think part of it is just saying, you know, look, for a long time, conservationists, and I'm a conservationist, right? We were the only ones solving the problem, but in fact, we have the expertise to really define the problem. We don't necessarily have all the tools to be able to solve them, right? We need to broaden that community of potential solvers. So when you connect someone 
to Coursera or to edX or any of these platforms, you're giving people the access to become coders, to become molecular biologists, to develop new tools. But two examples, you know, one is we worked with, uh, we had a prototyping competition and there's this problem with right whales on the east coast of the United States and a major source, two major sources of mortality, one is ship strikes. So literally ships in the shipping channel hit the right whales. There's not, I forgot how many there are left in the world. So I think 500 or fewer than 500, 500, 500 or so left, right? So you lose, you, you know, you lose 50 of them. That's a significant driver. You know, once you get below 500, you're in the vortex toward extinction, right? Well, the other one are entanglements in lines and particular lobster traps. There are a million lines in the water between Florida and, and Maine. So a million lines that those whales have to navigate through. And through one of the, these little competitions we had, actually this one was called Make for the Planet, uh, that we ran in Borneo because we wanted to be closest to the people uh, and closest to the problem sets we we're trying to develop. This team developed something that was lineless fishing, which was essentially a sonic key, so an underwater sound that was unique to every lobster trap, that created an inflation that would essentially bring the traps to the surface. Hmm. So you had the ability to, 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 to actually eliminate one of the two major sources of mortality. And this came, you know, from two recent undergrads that had just finished college uh, in developing them. And I was at an international conference and saw uh, one of the vice presidents of the International Fund for Animal Welfare stand up and say, the only solution in the world that exists for this was the solution that these guys were talking about. And I was just like, that is amazing. That didn't they, didn't amazing. they prototype it in like less than a week? Like they were able to. It, it, it was incredible. The other one, uh, the other one that I think is really cool is there is two women. One was a material scientist. The other one uh, was a script oceanographer. She was managing the shark tank at uh, one of the casinos in Las Vegas, you <laughs> like, you know, this problem of, of, you know, how do we actually deal with the problem of, you know, shark finning? Mm -hmm. but she actually pivoted and said, well, there's this other problem, which is around shrimp. And if you capture shrimp, there's two ways to grow shrimp, right? You can wild capture them or you can farm them. If you wild capture shrimp, it's you catch 20 pounds of fish that are thrown away for every pound of shrimp you eat. If you grow shrimp, it usually is done with mangrove deforestation. And there's a bunch of other problems. There's slavery, there's pollution from the shrimp farming, there's disease issues. And they created shrimp out of red algae that's now vegan and kosher because it's no longer shellfish, but doesn't have the bycatch, doesn't have the slavery. And their number one, um, their number one audience is actually university students because they're demanding these types of products. Right, so right. universities are buying tens of thousands of pounds. They just got major investment from Tyson's. We met them when they were two people, yeah. uh, just these two founders. And it, and so the ability to do something that could literally, because every pound of shrimp they sell is 20 pounds of fish right. exist in that ecosystem. Right, right. That's incredible. Yeah, what's cool about that, Alex? I just I just realized about those two examples um, that that I hadn't thought of before that I love so much is so much of environmentalism for so many years has been about thou shalt not right. stop doing things and sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Those are both examples of saying 
no, please keep doing what you're doing. Eat shrimp or, you know, be a, be a lobster fisher, a lobsterman. Uh, but let's do it in a better way. Right. Like do it in a way that doesn't harm the planet. Like there's, there's nothing incompatible with being a human and protecting the planet. I, and I, I love that. Like let's, let's, let's rethink entirely. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, it boils down to knowledge, right? Like we don't know what necessarily what we're what we're doing, um, and so there's a, there's a question that popped up from Tara Lee that I think, uh, you know, what are the roadblock what are the roadblocks to implementation of these uh, ideals? Uh, you need a great PR firm <laughs> that makes sense. So, um, you know, I think that's that that kind of hits the nail on the head on a lot of uh, things. Is is the is basically through through no fault, or in some cases it is through a fault, but normally not through any any fault. Is is a certain level of ignorance uh, as to the impact that's that's being created, and uh, and you know one method of you know raising shrimp, for instance, versus another. Um, you know we, we just tend to do things the way we've always done it, and not really think think too much about it. Um, or as consumers, just go to the supermarket and buy shrimp and not really care where how it was. How it how it got to the supermarket, you know. But yeah, well, that, I, mean, I think we have incredible power as consumers to to dictate how these things are, are are done because we're the ones you know at the checkout counter paying the money. I had this. I think so much of this is actually systemic, honestly, and not and not that consumers don't want things, but it's not available. I mean, if you look at the growth in in plant based proteins, the Impossible Burger, Beyond Beyond Meat, these sorts of things, new wave foods like Alex described. It's really, it's massive. And it's not all vegans buying it. It's actually a lot of meat eaters that are just replacing things, you know, for, for various, and they're not necessarily for health because they're not typically any healthier. Um, but I, I remember um, in turn, like to, to, to Taylor's sort of sort of question, roadblocks, I, I think there are fewer roadblocks than we imagine. I think we're, we're assuming they exist where they they might not. And, and the story, Alex has heard this story before, but the one that always sticks in my mind is over is about the politicization of some of these issues around climate uh, conservation, climate change, and my wife, uh, who when when she got pregnant with our first child, who's now fifteen, um, uh, joined a, a a random board of other women that were going to give birth in in the same month, and uh, just so they could get to know each other and you know and share experiences during pregnancy, and so it was a completely random cross section of America plus one German woman. Um, and, and, and as it turns out, you know, like, like America, most are, are, uh, are, are, are Christian and they, you know, half conservative, half liberal, etc. Well, a few years later, they're still all great friends, right? Because they bonded over this and, and they're, they're conversing on, on Facebook. And one of, uh, one of, one of, one of, uh, the, the members of the women on this, on this group, uh, posts something about Al Gore and how, and how upset she is at Al Gore and how, how much, you know, he and those environmentalists, make her so mad because they're so self-righteous and, and they suck, et cetera, et cetera. And another, another woman jumps on and says, yeah, you know, they're always telling us what to do and, and they're wrong and blah, blah, blah. And another one and another one. And then uh, none of the, none of the, the more, the more liberal uh, women on the, on the, on the board had really jumped in, but one, one woman then posts something to the effect of, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I hate the way environmentalists behave, but I do make sure that I, I don't use harsh chemicals in, in, in my house. And we like to buy, uh, organic food for our kids. And then another one, oh yeah, don't get me wrong. We make sure we recycle. And then another one, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We actually just bought a hybrid because it's uh, cheaper and, and better. And the whole conversation completely flipped mm -hmm. into one of defending their sort of green 
credentials or, or mm -hmm. bona fides. And what was great was you saw these, these women who were able to talk to each other across party lines, for example, really recognizing that they shared the same values. They wanted a healthy planet for healthy children, healthy economy. Uh, and, and there were ways of doing this if they just, if, if you could, to your point, Ron, what you said about you know, consumer behavior, which yeah. choices can you make? Right. Can you buy a more efficient vehicle? Or can you, can you buy food? Can you buy less um, um, beef, let's say, and, and, and reduce the, the, the impact of that? And I know, I know people from every walk of life that are making those kinds of decisions uh, more and more. I think, I think, Taylor, to your question, you know, the more that we can as individuals talk about this, not just through advertising and PR, but as, as personal people living our values, the, the more we'll find that others out there have solutions we can cap capitalize on that we may not have known about before. Yeah, just just to kind of build on that, I you know, one of the I I have sort of a maybe a more controversial thought about consumers, which is, you know, one is why are we giving them a choice sometimes? Like certain things, no, you know, why do we still have palm oil when there are really good synthetic palm oil substitutes within and a whole bevy of better choices that are better for you, that taste the same, that don't need to be grown up, grown within a sterile plantation. The reason we have some of these things, and you know, I'm very much middle of the road and, and I'm really value innovation, entrepreneurship as a way of solving these problems, uh, as opposed to just pure philanthropy within what we're doing. That if you actually look at, at taking subsidies out of many of our economic systems, right, which are distortions of the free market, many of the things that are really bad for the environment actually fall out. Right. This is the ironic component. Yeah. We subsidize overfishing. We subsidize overuse of pesticides and inputs. We subsidize all those things. And so we can, you know, if we're really being if you're a conservative and you're really being a conservative, then look at the subsidies. The best example is we had, you know, in the Pacific Northwest for a long time on our national forest, we were selling national, we were paying for the logging roads to access national forests that had to be multiple use. So they had to do more than just be timber. They had to serve, you know, all biodiversity, conservation, recreation, all these functions. And we were losing a dollar for every penny we were gaining on those sales because the cost of building the roads to those environments were so high. And then those roads were actually hurting our streams and hurting the salmon fishery and our fisheries and, and everything else that we have. If we're not subsidizing them, no, no private sector organization would have made that bet right, right. You know, for, for what we're doing. So, so one is like, it's hard for me to understand why some of these things are so politically yeah. um, restricted because if we're actually so politically uh, partisan, yeah. Yeah. because we're actually we're looking <clears throat> at this with economics, we're looking at this from a free market perspective. And then that takes you to say, how do we actually take where the planet is going and the future direction of what we have to create and what we wish to create? Why not turn that into the, those grand challenges into right. the biggest opportunities right. we've ever had? Right. But there are real barriers, right? With food, with meat, you know, Texas Cattlemen's Association, when when uh, when Oprah said eat more plants, they sued Oprah and she had to issue a public apology for telling people to eat less meat. 
right? And, you know, they're working hard to say, well, look, if you have cellular agriculture, you have plant-based meats, um, you know, you can't call it meat. And, and it's unfortunate what, you know, they're growing the cow and they're growing milk without the cow involved in the process. My favorite company, by the way, uh, they had the best, their name now is Perfect Day. And they made, uh, they brew milk like you brew beer, but it's literally the same kind of milk except you don't have brucellosis or really nasty bacteria. Uh, you don't have a bunch of other problems uh, with that milk, but their name was much better. It was called Moo Free. That's <laughs> my favorite name. And they changed it the perfect day. I'm like, it's not as good of a name. Well, you know, one of the things that I think this this current crisis that we're in uh, is doing is accelerating. It's a little bit of a techno, uh, technology accelerator. I mean, we're having this conversation right now. We wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. if, it were, <laughs> if it wasn't for the crisis. And so where do you guys, since you, you guys are so involved with tech, where do you see technology uh, and how does it how does it relate to Conservation X Labs? How does Conservation X Labs and what you guys are doing there uh, relate to a biosphere that currently is in crisis uh, with this virus. Paul, do you want to take it? There's so much in there. I, you know, well, <laughs> like one thing that is interesting, just this kind of technology, right? Being able to vir virtual conference and such is seeing, for example, a lot of big tech firms now saying that they're going to go totally virtual, and and now people are starting, and, and and there's this interesting conversation happening online about. You know, oh, well, I live in the Bay Area, which is prohibitively expensive to almost everyone. Where are you going to move? If you don't have to live there, are you right. going to move right. somewhere completely, you know, completely different? Um, but what that's what that's brought up, this returns to your first point, Ron, about sort of the interconnectedness of, of all things is now people are debating, well, what does that mean about gentrifying uh, other parts of the country or the world, uh, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and bringing that in or and other people saying, I don't want to leave because this is my community because we're, so, I mean, if, if this, if sheltering in place has taught us anything, it's that we really are a social species and we, we humans crave other people. We crave our community. We crave all the elements of that community. So other people saying, I don't care if, if I, I work from home forever, I'm still going to live where I want, you know, with the people I, I've, I've grown up with or I, I currently know, which I think is what, what, what that, that tells you is that technology probably won't change the fundamentals of who, who humans are, yeah. but it can enable us potentially to be our best selves in many ways, right? It's a great thing if you don't have to commute, right? Not only because commuting tends to be done in cars in the United States and that's polluting, but also because commuting tends to detract from things like social connections. There was this great study out of the Texas Transportation Institute a number of years ago that found that for something like every 10 minutes of additional commute time, People had 10% fewer social connections. Mm. But think, you know, think about that, right? You get home from work, you got to make dinner. There's no time for uh, your bowling league. There's no time to volunteer at your church. There's no time to coach your kids' soccer team, right? All of those things go away if you're sitting on a freeway in a car on a freeway. Exactly. So I like the idea that technology like this might actually enable. Not it, again, it's not just better for the planet. It's better for humans as part of the the planet, which I think is really remarkable. Right. And so that I mean, maybe. Like, like we see that as these kinds of new technologies as a real opportunity. And let me give one example of something that's really related to, to COVID-19 that we're working on um, because it's, it's all kind of intertwined. We, um, in addition to Conservation X Labs running a bunch of competitions for lots of people to try and identify and solve big problems, 
In addition to this platform we have where people can come on and collaborate and offer their skills, we call our digital makerspace. We also have a couple of labs where we build really uh, cool new technology to address some of the threats to biodiversity. One of the things we've been building for the past few years is a, is a handheld device that essentially takes a molecular biology lab out of the lab and puts it into the hands of anyone so that you can identify any species anywhere in the world in less than 40 minutes. And it's all self-contained in one platform. You simply need to take a swab. And we developed this for things like, like seafood, which is overfished, uh, shark fins, which are, which are often endangered, uh, wildlife trafficking. If, you know, if you can't tell exactly what this meat is, is it, you know, is it tiger or something like this that might be illegal? Um, invasive species. Is this, a, is this a, a mosquito that's coming in and bringing West Nile, et cetera? Um, because you can just quickly, you know, take a swab, take a little bit, stick it into what we call our, our, our barcode identification tool or our barcode scanner for, for, for DNA. And, and, then, and then there's a whole screen that just tells you what, you know, press this button one step. And then within 40 minutes, it tells you what you got. Yeah. Um, we're able to do that because technology has advanced so far and become so inexpensive. And we could build it on a Raspberry Pi. We could, we could buy phenomenal sensors. Uh, and, and such really cheaply on the internet. And it all comes and you assemble it because we have brilliant people. Essentially, right? it's a brilliant team that, that does it. Um, we took that and and uh, Alex actually called me one day right at the beginning of, 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 of the, the, the lockdown orders. And, and he said, hey, Paul, could we take uh, the barcode scanner and, and could, we, could we create a test for COVID? And uh, and because because he's the as you as you heard he loves to run into places of great change and do crazy crazy things that's like he's my insane partner and I'm the uh, I'm the kind of more buttoned up one that's wearing a button down you know college shirt and everything and I said no Alex we can't do that that's crazy talk and uh, and he said oh and, uh, all, and then, all conversations draw off that way okay, oh, no. I, like no. I hate that too so stop saying no so but. I think about it, and I and, I, and like like five hours later, I, I call I, I call up uh, David, who, who's our lead molecular uh, genius, and and I said, David, what would it take for us to develop a test for the for the novel coronavirus? And he says, Hmm, this is a Friday. Now this time it's like Friday five o'clock or something like that. Three hours later, David, who's been working straight through on this, sends me a note with a fully detailed plan on how we're going to develop this this coronavirus uh, test. So I'm able to call Alex by which time it's like midnight his time. You're like, we can do this. Or maybe I called you the next morning on Saturday or something. I said, yeah, we can do this. We can totally do this. But the best part was that David was like, no, we can't. We can't. all say no to you first. And then oh, we all, no, no. he said no around eventually. It's like, it was but so now like we, by, and so we've accelerated everything. And by the fall, we expect to have these, these tests that anybody can take anywhere. So for the developing awesome. world, refugee camps, rural America, where, you know, there, there are some states uh, in Kansas, there's one lab that everything is sent to for the, for the entire state. West Virginia tends to send everything to Baltimore or Washington, D.C., right? This, instead, this could turn around testing within an hour, uh, mm -hmm. wherever you happen to be, right? So, and that's all because of two things. One, the availability of tech to create radically new products. And two, the ability uh, for problem sets that are completely orthogonal, or we thought they were outside there, like conservation, to create a set of design characteristics, field ready, easy to use, cheap, fast, you know, goes anywhere that we needed for putting in the hands of, of, a, of a customs agent in, in, in uh, Dar es Salaam or in the hands of a, of a, of a fisheries 
uh, manager in in Bering Strait of Alaska, right, the Bering Sea. Those constraints uh, meant, wow, this could be the perfect kind of tool for also addressing a, a you know a pandemic in places right. that just don't have that capacity today. Um, so, so how can people keep up with that the progress uh, that you guys are making on that? Uh, it's actually going incredibly fast. And part of the reason is we accelerated the entire process for COVID. But we, um, one of the reasons, and so you can follow it on our website. You can sign up, conservationxlabs.org. You can sign up to get updates in terms of what we're doing. Um, and we're doing a lot. We're doing everything from artisanal scale mining, uh, which is how you get 20% of your gold in the Amazon to reinventing microfibers uh uh the you know to make it more sustainable to thinking about pests and pathogens um so all those things you can sort of sign up and just hear about and actually join in and help us solve because we we give away about a third of our our budget every year to other inventors to other innovators to give them opportunity like we literally our view is be the hero you know be the person and create the world that you want to see and and join join us in being able to do this, and that that is incredibly um, that has been incredibly positive. And just giving you know, if you think about think about like Ron, think about conservation, right? So what is the normal thing you see? It's the it's the <laughs> a polar bear on an ice flow. The ice flow is always going out to sea, right? The polar bear is always sad, super skinny. It's going out to see uh, generally Sarah McLaughlin music. I think that that's going to be playing, right? Uh, and, and it's just the polar bear, for some reason, is looking back at the cameraman. I'm sure going, oh, that would be a tasty snack. But clearly there's like a tear in its eye. And as it goes out to sea, and it's just like, the, you know, donate, right? Whatever, whatever your donation is because of climate change. But the problem is like that actually discourages, this is where we as conservationists forget that humans are actually within this, that will discourage people are like, oh, I can't solve that problem. Yeah, right, right. It becomes you know, overwhelming. So, so yeah. you know, pat, pass, pass, pass me the Ibex uh, burger and you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rev up my four wheel drive and go out and run over a rattlesnake, whatever. Like, that doesn't actually work, uh, and 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 in fact, even things like red lists, like the endangered species list, drive up demand for those species. So we've got to think about how we're actually engaging and creating optimism for giving and creating the possibilities for people to solve the problems. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the difference between approaching a problem from a foundation of fear or approaching a, a problem from the foundation of on wonder. You know, on wonder opens your mind and it, it opens you up to collaboration and cooperation and fear does the exact opposite. Right. Can, you, can you talk about that? Like, like, because the one thing I, you know, I've been, I think I'm the, I, I may be one of the few people in the world to have two missed calls from space, <laughs> uh, which I've saved. I've saved those messages from you when you were on the ISS. But like it fundamentally changed you, like yeah. having yeah. that perspective. I mean, you we were, were found, you hear hear about the orbital perspective, and it sounds amazing. But yeah, what is like, how, what, what, what's it like to be to stare back at the whole 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it is a it is an incredible experience. It's an incredibly moving experience to see our planet hang from the blackness of, in, in the blackness of space. And I think, for me, in a way that I I don't think I'll ever really be able to fully explain. Um, but I but I've heard many other people who have been to space uh, express the the same phenomena, for lack of a better word is being physically detached from the earth made me feel deeply interconnected with everyone and everything on it. Um, and it becomes very clear that, you know, when I was out in space, I wasn't this guy from earth. I was of earth. I mean, earth, we're a part of earth and, and to take it a step further, we're, we're really of the universe, right? Cause the, the molecules of our body were forged in the stars, right? So we, we are, we are not in the universe. We are, we are part of the universe and we are not on the earth. We are a part of the earth. Uh, we are uh, a very integral uh, part of our biosphere. Uh, and we have evolved to be, uh, the, the holders of a sacred contract. You know, we, we have evolved to become the rulers of the world and with the power to have our world and every living thing on it thrive and live in harmony with each other and the, and the biosphere or destroy it. Uh, and that's within our power to do. And I think uh, what's really clear from space is uh, not only all that, but also the sobering contradiction between the beauty of our planet on one hand and the and the unfortunate realities of life on our planet for a significant number of those there. You know, when you when you look at this beautiful scene and then you mentally or, or you know psychologically you know zoom into the microscopic details of that scene, you realize that not everything is as it appears. That that it's it's at times pretty tough to live on this planet. But the other part of this is that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the very fact that, you, you know, you're floating on this international space station built by 15 nations, you know, probably the most complicated, complex structure ever built. Uh, and it is a perfect example of what we can do as a species when we set aside our differences and work together and, and are willing to collaborate uh, towards a, a higher purpose, towards a greater mission is, you know, you're filled with this hope and optimism of what uh, what our potential future could be. And I think, you know, guys like you who are, <laughs> who are trying to, to steer us on the right path, you're trying to nudge the trajectory of our society towards a more sustainable, towards a more restorative world. And I think that's, you know, really a, a critical part of this. Um, so. I think it's guys like us, because when I met you, you were trying to solve water act, clean water access in Rwanda <laughs> and, and across East Africa, which you've helped do. Uh, uh, through your work. So I want to just make sure that the credit goes. But so I want to ask you a question. Um, what was your carbon footprint like riding the space shuttle? What <laughs> about those carbon credits on plane flights? I'm just yeah. wondering how that works when there's all that fuel being yeah. per second. Um, you don't have to buy the Amazon in order I to. Know, I don't know the answer to that, but most of that is steam. Right, so it's oxygen and hydrogen coming together. It's not all steam, <laughs> but a good part of it is. Um, and you know, th there is an environmental—I don't know what it is—but there is a there is a carbon footprint. There is an environmental footprint for things like launching to space. But you have to weigh the benefits. Is it a net positive to the world? Is it a net positive to do have the carbon emissions of launching a weather satellite or, or a climate science satellite? Or is the, the, the work that's being done, the research that's being done on the International Space Station justify the environmental impact, which in the big scheme of things is, is a drop in the bucket when you compare to, you know, 
the number of airline flights there are every day or the number of cars, even, even during the COVID crisis, the number of, of cars on the road. So that's, I mean, this is, I think that's a, that's actually a really good point. And I think it's, it's one we forget about that, that there's almost no perfect choice. Uh, and that, and that in this really interesting consequential time, it's really an era of hard choices. We have to, but, yeah. but it's a lot better to make hard choices than to just keep going along. The, the hardest choice in the world is the status quo. Cause we know where that, that leads, right? We know we, we can pro project how to your point about all the, all, you know, zooming in on all the, all the kind of negative things that are out there. Those are, those are, we keep, keep down this path and, and civilization is threatened. Yeah. Uh, so let's make, let's make the actually easy choice to, to, to rethink our systems. I think that's. Can I, can I just bring just one point, Ron, uh, sure. along building on what Paul just said. So one of the things that we're trying to figure out, you know, conservation has spent all this time ranking species by their endangerment or ranking landscapes in terms of the importance of their protection. But we've never gone through and systematically looked at the solutions and tried to say which solutions are literally the most impactful. So if we sell food waste, Right. You're also solving a trillion gallons of water left on U.S. fields. You're solving, you know, you have less nitrogen, phosphorus, you have less pesticides. You have a lot of things that you can solve. But actually being able to rank those things is one of the things we're thinking about. Of Where can we have because we have to make choices, the biggest bang for the buck. Right. Exactly. So I think along or, or related to those lines, let's throw up another another question here. I love that you figured out how to make this. This, yeah, this is technology, man. I'm, I'm figuring it out. So um, were you guys surprised to see that with a severe reduction in industry, aviation, et cetera, due to lockdowns, the drop in levels of emissions was only uh, 10%. What does that mean in terms of systematic change that needs to happen versus individual choice, which often feels, I don't know what that feels the focus, loses the focus? It <laughs> feels like the focus. Yeah, no, I, this is, so I've done a lot of work on climate, as, as you heard in my, in my, in my bio, and there's, there's this fantastic research, we, we've kind of touched on it, about how people respond to different messages about it. And one of the, one of the greatest examples was, was uh, we often were talking about climate change as this global threat, and the consequences of it were even, we even described as things like acts of God, right, hurricanes and sea level rise. When you use that language, you, you, uh, one of you pointed this out, it sounds like it's too big to deal with, right? And then, then those same people saying this is this is this massive threat to the entire planet, and it's and it's planetary in scale would say, so change your light bulb, and 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 political psychologists found that 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 cognitive dissonance was so insane to tell somebody that there's that there's a that there's a threat to their world the the scope of which only God can 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 manage, but you better change your light bulb. And, and people, people just basically turned it right. off. They, they, you said, Alex, like, I'm going to go eat my Ibex burger and drive over a rattlesnake. Um, I'm not sure why you chose rattlesnakes, man. That's like, they're cool. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, so I think that's right. Like we, 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 this is making it clear. I mean, honestly, the, the virus is making clear as well that individual choices, both, both uh, aren't enough, but also matter immensely. Right. So if you take the analogy of what we're dealing with this, with this virus, we, you know, as an individual could not stop it crossing borders and infecting uh, every community. But we as all individuals together, sheltering in place, wearing a mask, following these public health guidelines can actually s slow the spread of it. But, it but, but, but even a few individuals breaking that social compact creates challenges with it. 
The same thing is, is true of climate change. Every, an individual can make every good choice that they want, but if, they're, if we're still subsidizing uh, uh, you know, over-fertilization of, 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 uh, of, of uh, crops or subsidizing certain fossil fuels and things like this, then the system is, is itself doesn't change. Or you know, systemic change, directly answering this question, yeah, not much changed in terms of how we actually create greenhouse gases in the world, right? The electricity is still pumping out, right? We, we never turned that off. The majority is still burning fossil fuels, although it looks, uh, we for the first time have seen United States wide renewables produce more electricity than, than, than coal, which is phenomenal. And we're like on this great track that's exponentially positive and, and amazing. Um, but, that, but that takes time. All of those systemic changes take real time. And without a choice, I, I live in LA. I, I, I looked into how it was I could get to work without driving a car and discovered it would take me about four and a half hours yeah. on public of, of, of bus, <laughs> like three subways uh, and, and a bike for the last mile that I'd have to, I'd have, have to ride on. Right. So I didn't have a choice. But like that, that, that's the system that we built as a whole. So no matter what I do, but we do together collectively have a choice to make. Right. And, and, and I think we're, we're doing LA decided twice more than two thirds of voters here to, to tax ourselves to create better public transit. Like gonna, I want to thank Taylor for her really, really nice comment. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you mean this one? Uh, yes. <laughs> thank you, Taylor. Uh, uh, the, the, um, the second one is uh, uh, just an answer to that. I think it's a, it's a really good question. And we absolutely, you know, two things need to be happening. One scientists, need to fundamentally be monitoring everything that's going on now because this is a natural experiment that gives us better insights into those systems. I think as Paul says, you know, the, the best example for me to kind of think about this is like what happened with toilet paper, right? And what happened with some of our, our food supplies. And part of what happened was like the demand from the consumer section, our supply chains have gotten so specific that the demand from the consumer section skyrocketed, right? We're all at home. We're using toilet paper faster than ever. We're accessing it all. The demands for industry from restaurants, from, from offices, from those places plummeted. And it's even it's even worse for, for, for meat, right? We are limited in how much meat we can buy at the supermarket, but 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 we're actively killing livestock because and you can see this with fish. So the you know Generally, when people go out and eat fish, they're eating it in restaurants because restaurants know how to cook it. And uh, but we've seen this demand because we're stocking up on tuna for tuna fish, which is sending signals to fishermen uh, in this complex system to actually go fish more tuna and even do so unsustainably. Right. So it is this system, right? We, as Paul says, we are generating electricity because we're all using electricity at home. But the other missing part of the piece is as we are increasing industrial and human impact on the environment through our cities, through our industry, through our work, we've also been undermining the fundamental regulatory functions of the environment by clearing the Amazon, by clearing the Congo Basin, by under, you know, because half our insects are missing because, because, you know, all these systems are are interconnected as you say and they're literally un off whack and i also think it's probably there is something along the lines of a lag effect a lot of our species are walking dead you know there are species that don't know that they're extinct yet because 
you know, they're living long enough, but they're, they can't find their mates. They don't have, you know, their habitat is no longer there. They're maladapted. They're in what's called an evolutionary trap. Uh, and, and in some ways, some of these changes, you know, like we've seen with COVID, COVID, what happens with the response to COVID based on our behavior happens with a two to three week lag before yeah. we start seeing those effects. So we go into social distancing, you're not going to see changes until after that's been in place. Same or you thing. come out of social distancing, you're not yeah. going to see <laughs> Social distancing, we will see what happens three weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, take, take a good look and, and imagine that. But the same thing's true about extinction and climate change as yeah. well. Well, you know, th this conversation has, has really flown by. Um, and uh, I think I think we're we're coming up on the hour. Um, so, are, is there any last words that you want to leave folks with? Uh, I'll ask you a question. Yeah. Never ask you. So every time I flew to Afghanistan and Iraq, I I was always a little bit scared, right? I, like I I did it despite being scared. Like I run to crazy places despite the fact that I was scared. When you were strapped into the space shuttle. Right. With literally like hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds of explosives, of flammable fuels that maybe made water vapor later. But like, <laughs> were you scared? Like, was that terrifying? Um, I wouldn't say it was terrifying. I mean, I was very uh, cognizant of the danger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I because I, I was thinking this watching the, the SpaceX launch the other day and then when they yeah. scrubbed it. What would it have felt like? <laughs> did you have any scrub launches like that? I, I didn't. All my all, and I'm that's that's very rare for an astronaut not to have scrubs. But uh, all mine went off on the first time. So so there, you'd have to be somewhat insane, I think, to not feel yeah. a little bit of fear uh, when you're strapped to four and a half million pounds of explosives. But for me, and I think this is probably the same for most everybody who flies in space, if not everybody. The overarching thing was that we were doing something really meaningful, that we were doing something for the world, for our country, uh, and uh, it was going to make the, the world a better place. And we were part of this, you know, really incredible thing. Um, unfortunately, flying in space uh, has a certain level of danger to it, but pretty much anything that's worthwhile you know, comes with comes with some type of price, whether it's safety or, or, or whatever else. So, um you know, I think it's uh, it's our ability as a species to rise above that fear, uh, especially the divisiveness of that fear, uh, is what's going to allow us to uh, to thrive and to get through this and every other crisis. So, um, okay. you guys, you guys have any any last words for the folks? I think you just gave us the end for this. this yeah, all right. And I want to just say to the audience that are listening in, I know this guy personally. He is as nice as he appears, if not even more so. People I've ever met. No, you're you're full of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, you you were you were uh, formerly the chief science scientist of the X Prize Foundation. Next week, we're going to have the CEO of the X Prize Foundation, awesome. Nishan Sari. So she's she, she, I'm really really looking forward to that. And so, thanks to everybody who joined. Uh, thanks for all the great questions and, and comments. And uh, we'll have this uh, recording available. And so. Uh, with that, we're gonna we're gonna say uh, goodbye to everybody. Take care.
Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the orbital perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space. 